Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. Eye of the Cricket by James Salis, read by Ray Shell and Joel Carey. While tramping the streets of New Orleans, Lou Griffin has met a man whom he's met before, in a hospital, with a copy of Lou's novel, The Old Man, in his pocket, inscribed to David. David is Lou's son, who has left home and disappeared some years before. Perhaps this stranger has news of him. Nights had not so much fallen about us as it had toppled there, collapsed, capsized. Lights lashed up from boats on the river, others stabbed at the darkness from cars racing past on Leak Avenue behind us. Someone else brought news, or no news, said my companion, searching back in the shadows of his mind. Someone else, then. I was terrible sick. Some kind of flu, burning up one minute, freezing the next. Let go in the bed a couple of times I know of, at least. Too weak to crawl out. Guess he probably cleaned that up, too. In between reading this book to me, spooning soup down me. He must have read that book to me cover to cover half a dozen times. Don't suppose you remember what he looked like. Not paying much attention at the time. Not quite there, right? Young man, what I see now, I look back on it. Black or white. Black, like you. Mostly his eyes, I remember. His eyes. Brown, with green floating around somewhere in there. Never could say just how or where. Like yours. Ever hear his name? He thought it over. Sorry, can't recall his ever using one. Not much use for name situation like that. Never heard another staff member speak to him, maybe call him by name. He shook his head. I think I'd remember. Whole thing's etched in my mind like a dream. Doesn't make much sense, but you can't shake it off, can't get shed of it. I thought I was dying, held on pretty hard to whatever I could grab onto. Strange times. Dark now was absolute. One more beer. Got your name on it, I said. Why not, then? First he rolled along his forehead, then popped it open and drank. One thing, he said. Yes, never thought of this before. I waited. When I first started coming out of it, most of it's kind of a blur, you understand. What happened when, the order of things, all jumped up together. But now I think about it. There was this one time I came half awake, and someone standing there over me saying, you're going to be okay. You hear me? You're going to be okay. It's just a matter of time now. I remember reaching up, things still not too clear, didn't know them. Could be one of those who'd been chasing after me. I try to ask him. He takes my hand and bends close over me. Now his face fills the sky. Can't make out what I'm saying. David, he says. You asking after David? He's gone on. Sicker ones than you here now, mate. But not to worry. We'll take good care of you. I speak to you. I think you understand. You know you. 
made your son Joseph a dangerous man, boy. He's gone to town, bought himself a gun. This could happen to every mother's son. Welcome back. Yeah, I guess you could say the same to me, but neither of us has ever really been away, have we? We drag our worlds along with us and we can't let them go. Can't get rid of the damn things. Trapped animals have better sense. They'll gnaw a leg off and crawl away. We just tell ourselves that once we get the furniture inside our heads rearranged, it's going to be a new room, a new world. Sure it is. But you're going to be okay, Louis. We both are. You've been here just over three weeks. Don't suppose you remember much of it. Police picked you up finally. You'd been sitting on curbs outside Cooter Brown's in a string of bars up on Oak, berating customers as they came out, demanding what you kept calling donations, going in these places and before they heaved you back out, grabbing half-finished beers and drinks off the tables. Sound familiar? You still feel like you're underwater looking out. What you told me a few days ago. It's because the doctors have you on some pretty heavy sedation. You've been off IVs a couple of days now. You were so dehydrated when you got here, you could barely pull your tongue away from the roof of your mouth. Another day or two now, you might even be able to keep food down again. Much of last week come back to you? February 11th, a Monday? Well, maybe some of it will, in time. You never know. What does it matter? You're here. You survived. That's the important thing. Okay. You're right. It does matter. And not only to you. Three, four in the morning, I had a phone call. Dan the man, two flights down, I, I hear him stomping upstairs like he's driving railroad spikes with his feet. Everyone in the house awake for sure and lying there listening to this. No way anyone's going to sleep through it. Then there's this polite knock at the door. You got a call, brother. Brother's what most people call me here. Started out like so many things do, as a joke. Someone saying, hey, bro, because I was black. Someone else picking it up, calling me Brother Teresa. <laughs> I'd never had a call before. Guy on the other end tells me his name is Richard Garces. No, I didn't know him. Only met him last week. But he told me how over the years he built up this loose network of people like himself. Social workers, mental health nurses and techs. People he talked to over the net on a regular basis. And how some years back he'd started hearing things he got curious about. So he pushed a little, asked a few strategic questions, kept his ears open and started putting it together. Hardest thing he ever did, he said, not telling you. He figured it was my own life, that I had my reasons which reason could not know and so on. But that night on the phone, he told me things had gone upside down and that he thought I should know. Ten minutes tops, I was on my way. They were holding you at the University Hospital pending court hearing. Don Walsh came in not long after. Didn't say much. Just shook hands. A little sadly, I thought. I didn't learn about Danny till later. 
and introduce his friend from the DA's office, a woman named Arlene. Arlene's wearing jeans and a pink dress shirt with a man's tie at half-mast and a leather fanny pack. She steps through, around, and past legal formalities like she's off somewhere else reading a book or having a good meal. This is so simple. And before any of us know it, we're out on the other side, standing on the sidewalk with this miserable six-in-the-morning rain slopping down on us into clogged gutters, whole city starting to smell like wet sheep. You and Deborah been together long? Just wondered. She was there too by then. Asked if it were possible the two of you might be alone a while. She had her car. She'd bring you around to the center. Three weeks, or just over. You came in on a Sunday. It's Monday now, late afternoon. I did keep track of your books. Every new one that came out, I'd read it thinking, okay, he's managed to pull it off one more time. I tried to figure out the people I knew, which of your apartments you were describing, the bars and restaurants and women you wrote about. The old man's still my favorite. You all right? Need to rest? That's some strong stuff you're behind right now. Know how it is. Been there, done that. Maybe later we'll have the chance, be able to talk about all that. I used to think a lot about that story you were always telling. How back home your father took you to breakfast one morning at Nick's on the levee by the river, and how once you'd ordered and got your plates through a side window in the kitchen and was sitting there on the steps of the old railway station watching all the white folks so warm at the tables inside and balancing greasy paper plates on knees shaky with cold. He told you that no matter what you did, raise his children for him, fight his wars for him, keep his economy afloat. To the white man, you'd always be invisible. Mirrors weren't made for the likes of us, you said. But of course, I knew there was no way I was going to be kept away from those mirrors. Mirrors? Hell, I'd be on the covers of their goddamn magazines. We're kids. Stuff like that goes through us like water. What's my old man know? Or your old man? Any old man? Things are different now. World's different. I'm different. Sure. So I go on reading my books, and then one day, it seems all of a sudden at once now when I look back at it, there I am, in Europe, halfway to be an old man myself. Biggest damn mirrors you ever saw. Here's everything I've been taught is most important. Everything I've made so much a part of my life, of what I am. European art, European history, European literature, everything that defines the culture I live in. Put out your hand and you touch it. Knock over some monument of unaging intellect if you're not careful. Then one day I realize I can't see myself in those mirrors anymore. I'm simply not there. Not there at all. However hard I stare. Because my skin is black? Because I'm not European? You tell me. I haven't figured it out. But everything I'd based my life on was suddenly gone. I came back to the States only to find that this had all become every bit as alien to me now as Paris, Berlin, or London. Brittany with its cattle, Kent with its sheep. The whole country was forts now. Fort Lakeside, Fort Britannia, malls and parking lots and fast food chains. 
Everybody's zipping past at 40, 50 miles an hour like trapped flies banged against windows. Everybody shut away in his own little world. And the more you're alone, the more natural seems the importance, the supremacy of self. Other lives become little more than contrails dissolving on the sky. Somehow, I knew I had to break out of that tyranny, get the windows open, learn to move slowly again, break the mirrors, embrace others' lives. I called you twice, but couldn't figure out what to say. I waited till the machine cut off, then hung up myself. But you know that, of course. You wrote about it. I've been here at the center almost the whole time. Found out pretty quickly that the pain I carried around with me thought I couldn't bear. Compared with others, that pain was nothing. These faces, they're the mirrors I can see myself in. Every one of them. Well, I wish I was in New Orleans. I can sit in my dreams on and on down Burgundy. Within the week, I was transferred to a halfway house in Midtown, a once grand home now given to dangerously sagging porches and balconies with railings like decayed teeth, across the street from a service station recently converted to a falafel house, sheets of plywood still stacked along the side. Holding on for dear life, and for lack of any other entertainment, Inmates sat out on the balconies to watch citizens come and go. A couple of weeks later, I was home, where this time Zeke, in turn, met me at the door. This is my son, Brother David, I said, and everyone laughed. Richard Garces, Don, Deborah, Norm, and Ray R.M. Marcus from up the street. All of them had come to see me home, and they'd all brought food. For the next hour or two, we worked our way through, around, and over pots of red beans and rice with grilled sausage, steaming gumbo which protruded various claws and halves of bivalve shells, tassel on a bed of mixed greens, boiled crawfish. Zeke <laughs> made untold pots of coffee, and for Deborah, cup after cup of tea, which he delivered to her on a small tray, complete with cream pitcher, lemon slices, vat of sugar, and a demitasse spoon he found somewhere. Hard to tell whether she or he got the bigger kick out of it. Music was catch as catch can. Whoever first noticed the last record, tape, or CD was done went over and put on whatever he or she wanted to. I remember hearing Fats Waller, Mozart's horn and clarinet quintets, arrested development, Frank Sinatra punching out lounge lizard standards. No idea how that ever got in there, not mine. Blind Willie McTell and wife, the Charlie Christian Minton sessions, 
Irish music recorded live at Matt Malloy's Springsteen's The Ghost of Tom Jode. Hours later, Don and I found ourselves sitting on the bench under the tree in the backyard by the slave quarters. People still moved around inside the house in the light, dark out here, moonlight pushing through clouds, through humidity that shelled the moon in nacreous layers, making it a pearl. A few more neighbors had shown up, a teacher or two, Sally Mara with her latest young man, the two of them all in black. Keith Leroy, we're in perfect English. I hope you know how happy I am for you, Lou, Walsh said. I mean that. I know you do. So what's up? David planning to stay here a while? I hope so. I've asked him. Good. That's good. And Deborah, how do things stand there? I shrugged. We'll see. Give time time, as the twelve-steppers say. Yeah. Has to be tough for all this coming down on her at once. Yeah. No question how much she cares, you know. All she can do just to take her eyes off you in there. Do me a favor. Don't screw this one up, Lou. Just don't expect as much out of her, out of the rest of us, as you do from yourself. You're saying this to a man who three weeks ago was drinking dregs out of beer bottles, cigarette butts and all. Yeah, but I didn't say anything about what you do. I was talking about what you expect of yourself. We sat together a while without saying more. Faintly, I could hear people's laughter from a neighboring yard. Some guest I didn't know stepped just outside the kitchen door to smoke, nodding politely toward Don and me. A squirrel leapt from root's edge to banana plant came within half an inch of not making it. He was screwed up, Lou. Always had been. Lazy as overcooked spaghetti. Weak. No skills, social or otherwise. Never gave me reason to think he'd ever be anything else. Minutes went by. I loved him, Lou. No one else can understand that the way you do. I miss him. Always will. I slid my arm over my friend's shoulder there in the close New Orleans night in that struggle of moonlight. Men walking along the railroad tracks Going someplace and there's no going back Highway patrol choppers coming up over the ridge Hot soup on a campfire in the breeze the struggles continue, for all of us, I guess. Very strange to have this house full of life again. I'm sitting here in the slave quarters, looking across to the house, thinking about past months. David stayed over a week, then another. Before long, without even discussing it, we all knew he lived here, goes off to work in the morning and comes home every night just like a businessman, taking care of the city's wounded and walking dead. 
Some days I go along with him. Zeke never quite got around to moving out either. He works for the Times Picaroon as an investigative reporter. Same thing I always did, he likes to tell people. Only now they let me walk around a lot more. Walsh even moved in for a while there. Most of a month, when nights got too hard and shadows too deep and thoughts of Danny crowded close, eventually he pulled things back into place and went home. But while he was here, evenings after dinner, we'd sit outside, talking. Beneath it all, tacitly, the way men our age do, I'm sure we were asking ourselves how all these years had got by us. David, Zeke, Walsh, a couple of others too, but I'll save that. Meanwhile, something extraordinary sits on the desk beside me. I've spent almost six weeks, day and night, working on this, and now I have no idea what I'll do with it. Look through all my published books, and you'll find much the same. What I did here in this extraordinary thing sitting beside me is this. I quit trying. Quit trying to finesse the failures and forfeitures of my life into fiction, to tuck people I love safely away in the corners of novels. Quit trying to force patterns, however comforting and fetching and artistic these patterns might be, onto the catch-as-catch-can of what I actually lived, the rigorous disorder of my days. This extraordinary thing is my autobiography. And I have no idea what to do with it. No idea at all. Publishers aren't likely to be interested in an account so plain and unembellished, so down, so apart. Should I publish it as fiction? <laughs> no doubt my editors, though I'd feel it a deep dishonesty, would welcome this. Maybe best that I simply file it away with all the other papers. All those fat files neither I nor anyone else will ever read again. It's frail purpose served. 6.40, almost dark. Zeke walks into the kitchen to start dinner, snaps the light on, and waves through the window above the sink. Minutes later, David shows up, home early. Misery down 30% in New Orleans today, and knocks at the door with chamomile tea. Dinner in an hour, he says. Zeke time, of course, which means closer to two. I sip the tea. Supposed to stay off caffeine. Supposed to stay off damn near everything. As though I'd had enough of it. I haven't. Haven't had enough of anything yet. However long and hard the siege has been. Some nights, I sit on the bench outside and I'm rendered mute. Absolutely mute. By the touch of the wind on my face. By light inside the house. How beautiful the world can be. I loved you, Vicky, and you, Laverne, and yes, you, Claire, loved you all and still do. All so much a part of me now, like Deborah. She showed up at the door one morning, days after I'd come back from night town. If it's okay with you, I thought I'd just drop my things off here and go on to work. She handed a suitcase through the door. I'm running late, though. What else is new? See you tonight, Lou. You show about this? She looked at me for a moment and nodded, then turned and broke for her car. 
we never spoke about it again. It's her home now, as much as it's mine, David's, or Zeke's. Tell me I could live without you. Tell me let the good times roll. Tell me I could live as half a man. Loving you's what made me whole. There was a time when I could sing to you. Live for the light that I could bring to you. I sat down to sing a lonely song. God knows I never thought that it could last so long. There's another as well. I was in the slave quarters working on this extraordinary thing, this book or whatever it turns out to be, almost done with it in fact, when David came to the door. Someone to see you, Dad. I waved my hand, a little impatiently, I'm sure, to indicate that I was working and didn't care to be bothered. I know. You want to see her. I wouldn't interrupt you otherwise. She's in the front room. I read the last couple of paragraphs, hit save, got up and went in through the kitchen. That appeared from nowhere, buzzed first my feet, then his nearly full bowl, urgently remonstrating. When I stepped into the front room, just past the sill, her face turned to me, and for a moment irrational fear flooded me. It could have been, for that moment I almost believed it was, her mother watching me and tears well behind my eyes. Hi, Louis, she said, looking pretty good for an old fart. She stepped towards me on the bare wood floor, one step, then another, had her mother's easy grace. Probably I should have called, but these days I got in the habit of doing things on a little more personal level. If you want me to leave, I will. I shook my head. I've been straight a year now. That's what I promised myself. Once I made it a year, I'd see you again. I've never forgotten what you did for me, Louis. I could use a friend. Difference is, now I can be a friend, too. Mute with the beauty of the world again, with its simple pleasures, I took those three necessary steps and took Alouette in my arms. Neither of us spoke for a while. When I was in the hospital on the breathing machine, you sat beside me for hours, it seemed, and you told me about when you first met my mom, how much you loved her, and how you'd never been able to tell her that. Once I was off crack, then later off alcohol, whenever things started getting bad, I'd remember your sitting there by me, telling me all that. That's what kept me going. I just hope someone someday might love me like that, that I'd be worth it. I saw the way your pain and your sorrow, your sense of regret got all mixed up with the love you had for her, with your tenderness, all those complicated memories. And I think that's what I've cut myself off from. More than anything else, I just wanted to feel again, Lewis. Whatever the cost, I asked. Yes. Welcome back, I said to Alouette. Welcome home. Mm -hmm. 
Rachel and Joel Carey were reading the final episode of Eye of the Cricket by James Salis. The music consultant was Paul Evans, and the book was abridged and directed by Gordon House. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.